Warm welcome to this UCL Lunch Hour Lecture on the role of popular culture for queer teen identities formation in Netflix's sex education. I'm Professor Alison Kozlowski, and I'm Pro Provost Equity and Inclusion and also co-director of the Thomas Coram Research Institute at UCL. And I will be chairing today's lecture. So it's my honor and pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Lucia Gloria Vaquez Rodriguez. And Lucia is a media scholar specialized in feminist and queer approaches to popular culture. And she joined us at UCL in April this year as a lecturer in digital media production and became a member of the research group Remap, which is research in media arts and play. Lucia has an MA in Film and Philosophy from King's College London and a PhD in Audiovisual Communication, Advertising and PR from the Complutense University of Madrid, where she worked in several projects and publications with the research group Cogetha, Gender, Aesthetics and Audiovisual Culture, and wrote a thesis on queer Latin American cinema directed by women. So Lathia's main interests and areas of interest are queer and feminist screen studies, digital fandom communities and media literacy, particularly in relation to teenagers, streaming platforms, sexual scripts and gender roles. Lathia is currently working on a book on the uses of haptic images within queer contemporary films directed by women. Although she's also published extensively, about LGBTIQ plus teen TV shows such as Sex Education. And there's a link to Lithia's research papers on the Lunch Hour Lecture website, so do take a look at those. So before we begin, I want to let you know that we will have some time at the end of the lecture for questions, and these can be submitted at any point during Lithia's talk by going to Slido, that's sli.do, and you enter that into your internet browser and entering the event quote, which is hashtag queer. So without further ado, I will now hand over to Lithia for her talk. Thank you, Alison, and thank you, everyone. Um, first of all, I would like to thank as well Monique Wacker and Diana Ursu and everyone working at the Office of the Vice President for External Engagement for their invitation, as well as Alison for her wonderful introduction and for agreeing to chair this talk today. As an early career scholar who recently joined UCL, it is a great honor and an absolute pleasure to kick off UCL's LGBTIQ History Month with this lunch hour lecture, where I will be talking about three things that I'm truly passionate about. Queer representation on TV, popular or even so-called trashy culture as a source of inspiration for us queers to build our identities, and one of my favorite TV shows of all time, Netflix's Sex Education, which, by the way, I think should be mandatory in secondary schools. Just saying. Although my presentation has a rather pompous title, I promise there will be plenty of great clips from the show, clips that will illustrate what I'm trying to say way better than my worst could. I have to warn you, though, that there will be plenty of spoilers, so I hope you haven't seen the show before. Some of the clips might also be a bit awkward to watch, as education about sexuality and sex practices is the main theme of this show. I actually think that the media can act as wonderful tools to disseminate knowledge about queer identities and sexuality in general, and possibly to do it even better than the well-known condom and banana stint that we've all seen in our schools. But that's a conversation for another time. For now, let's concentrate on how some of our favorite characters in sex education use objects from popular culture 
to develop their queer identities and establish their non-normative relationships with other characters. Um, so I wanted to start this presentation with a bit more information about myself, although Alison did a wonderful job introducing me. First of all, and this is a bit of a full disclosure position, I see academia as a place not only for innovation, knowledge exchange and critical thinking, but also for activism. In my case, for queer feminist activism, as my teaching and my research are highly influenced by my own identity and my embodied experiences as a queer woman. I started working on queer representation during my PhD in Spain, which was a little bit challenging due to the relative lack of institutional support and networks for queer media scholars. So I'm really, really happy to be working at UCL. Luckily for me, I joined this lovely research group called HECA, that you can see the logo there, which furthered my commitment to LGBTIQ activism and inclusion in academia, as my PhD supervisor was behind the establishment of the first MA in LGBTIQ studies in my country. It is also with these people that I did the research that I'm now presenting today. So I couldn't not mention and thank my colleagues, Fran Torian and Fran Garcia Ramos, who might be watching me today from Spain. I currently work with Remote as well, as Alison was mentioning, another fantastic group of researchers here at UCL that are highly interested in issues of media, gender, sexuality, and media literacy. And I know some of them are watching me and supporting me today. So thanks for that. So let's get down to business now. I started this project by asking myself a question. Why are queer teenagers three times more likely to attempt suicide than their cis-head counterparts? And how can we do something about it? What is the role that media plays in this situation? While there might be a variety of reasons, bullying and discrimination, lack of self-esteem and self-acceptance, and the absence of safe spaces slash communities of support might provide us with a good explanation for these appalling percentages. Even though the extreme right with their, with their discourses of wokenism having gone too far might have us believe otherwise, the situation isn't necessarily improving, or at least it's not improving at the speed we want it to. In fact, the latest British Social Attitude Survey released last fall indicated a sharp increase in societal anti-trans intolerance, with just 64% people saying that they were not at all prejudiced against trans folk. This percentage was 82% in 2019. With these bleak numbers in mind, why does queer representation in the media matter? Why do queer youth turn to popular culture when they seek a place to connect with others, a safe haven from the heteronormativity that reigns in their schools and in their families and sometimes in their churches, a mirror in which they can find positive or at least existing, visible reference in which they can model their identities? Research shows that queer teenagers are avid consumers of popular culture, that they turn to literature, to music, to cinema, to fashion, to video clips for inspiration on their identity formation processes and self-expression. For many years, most LGBTQ characters on TV, particularly those appearing in shows targeted at teenagers, were represented in a very stereotyped manner effeminate gay men like Stanford over there from Sex and the City, promiscuous by women characters that were only allowed tragic storylines read about bullying, suicide attempts, disease and rejection. LGBTIQ characters were often tokenized as well in an attempt to meet a diversity quota, more on this later, or only homonormative characters would be allowed to appear on screen. If you want to know what homonormativity looks like, just take a look at the way Mitch and Cam, those two characters over there in the corner, are represented in, sex in modern family, sorry. 
emulating the lifestyle that most heterosexual couples choose to have. In many family shows, queerness is only represented as okay insofar as it imitates the heteronormative way of being, monogamous capitalism, marriage, adoption, or surrogacy, which is highly problematic, a white picket fence with a house in the suburbs, while other ways of being queer, like polyamory, kinkiness, communal, communal ways of being queer, are essentially invisible on TV. Luckily, this is not the case of sex education, where we not only see various kinks represented, but open couples and polyamory are introduced as a possibility for queer straight and straight people in season four. Also, luckily, it is not just sex education, but shows like Euphoria, Elity, Heartstopper, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and so many more that are changing the landscape of how queer teenagers can be represented on screen, offering nuanced portrayals, positive role models, and a whole range of diverse characters beyond the white cisgender guy best friend that we are used to seeing on TV. Although, as several authors point out, this increasing visibility of queerness in popular culture particularly within video on demand platforms like Netflix, Amazon Prime or HBO, made respond to commercial interests, the so-called pink money, rather than reflecting an actual change in the values of the status quo. Now, another reason we are witnessing this change is that with the streaming platforms that anyone can see from any place over the world, the commercial risks of targeting more niche audiences like us, queer, who are supposedly a minority, are significantly lower than those of conventional TV. I added this last headline here and the last bullet point over there with obvious ironic intent. There is this widespread panic amongst family protectors that these platforms are trying to turn their children gay or trans or whatever it is. To this, I say that I grew up watching incredibly heteronormative shows like Friends or movies that reinforce gender roles, think about the Disney princesses. And this, unfortunately for some people, did not take me, make me straight. So why, what are you watching and why is it what you're watching something important? If, if we as adults come together through our shared love for a TV show like Game of Thrones or Fleabag or whatever it is we're watching, this is even more relevant for teenagers. Belonging to a peer group, which is often organized around aesthetic preferences and the consumption of popular culture is key for young people. Think of subcultures like the K-popers over there, emos or hipsters. How relevant is it for teenagers to fit in? to wear the trendiest outfits, to be able to comment on the shows that everyone is watching, and to emulate the last makeup trend that went viral on TikTok, like what we see here for the show Euphoria. Fandom communities on and offline have become wonderful spaces for queer interaction and recognition. Not so many years ago, a fair amount of women explored their queer sexuality and found a community within the fandom spaces built around the show Xena, the Warrior Princess. Sex education is no exception of this phenomenon. That image that you see there is a bit of an art that I wanted to share just to highlight the cultural relevance of the show. It is also important to point out that while in the UK, we might have a fairly inclusive society, and I you know, use inverted quotes for this, this does not necessarily apply for everyone watching sex education, which is available in many countries. This graphic over here measures the degree of popularity of sex education across various countries, comparing it with how popular the show was in its country of origin, which is the UK. Pirate Analytics for November of 2020 placed Russia in the highest category, followed by India, Philippines, South Africa, and the US. 
Now, Russia, at the head of the ranking, has an audience demand for sex education almost three times more than the UK. And the series is 16 times, 16, more popular than an average television series that is distributed in the country. Why is this a significant finding? Well, because in Russia, with the excuse of the protection of minors, again, there is a law against homosexual propaganda since 2013. This imposes fines for the dissemination of any content that normalizes sexual relations outside of the traditional ones, contributing to what we call institutionalized homophobia. Now, the same paper I'm quoting here that you can download using that QR code, we also um, contabilized or like made an analysis of the countries of the followers of Sex Education's Instagram's account to discover that Nigeria was in the top 25, which is a significant piece of information because in this country, being gay can actually kill you. Let's talk a bit more about the show and why I consider it a milestone for queer teen representation. It follows the adventures of Otis Melbourne, who is actually a heterosexual guy, but more on that later, in his sky school, which is located in a rural setting in the outskirts of Cardiff. Having observed his mother, who is a couple therapist, he establishes a sex counseling service for his peers with the help of his classmate and love interest Maeve over here. Each episode focuses on an issue related to adolescent sexuality, depicting numerous gender identities and sexual orientations. As Lori Noon, creator of the show herself says, audiences are looking to see themselves reflected in the characters, so inclusive storytelling is very important to our show. Now, another reason I love this show is its intersectional approach. It does not depict queerness as a universal category that's not affected by other identity markers, such as race, class, ability, or religious beliefs. Maeve over here and Ruby, another character, come from a working class family. In fact, Maeve lives in a trailer park. Cal and Eric over here are gay and black. Eric and Abby, that I'm gonna show you in a second, are queer and religious, which is you know, quite, quite new to see in a TV show like this. Let's move now on to the next point, tokenization. By tokenization, I mean that there are many, many shows where you have one people of color or one queer character to fill the quota, if you would. But here in this show, you not only have more than one character for each of the letters of the LGBTQ plus acronym, but also more than one queer black character and what is perhaps more groundbreaking, more than one disabled character with the introduction of Isaac here, Isaac is actually straight, and Aisha in season four, who has a hearing impairment and is also queer and poly. In addition, and considering that most of us did not have a proper sex education in school beyond STD warnings and pregnancy horror stories, let alone a queer sex education, it is important to consider that the main source of information regarding sexuality for queen tears have been, well, other uninformed teens, the internet and the media. So can we have a sex education in entertainment TV, actual sex education with pedagogical tools? In the show, sex education as such is not present just in the instances where Jean, the mother of the protagonist, the actual sex therapist, Otis, the protagonist, or O, who is the new sex therapist that gets introduced in season four, are giving professional advice to clients interested in solving relationship or sex problems. But sex education is also present on the ways actual sexual intercourse, as much as I hate the word, is represented on screen. For example, 
the way the show portrays trans sex in a non-fetishized, intimate, ungendered manner in season four with Abby and Roman over here was, che was cheered and cherished and like praised by queer audiences all over the world. Let me show you an example of non-normative education pedagogies in the show. In this scene, a war against student has asked Otis how to get ready for anal sex as he is about to lose his virginity. Rahim, who is more experienced, explains to Otis how to douche. Excuse me for being so explicit here. So I'm just gonna play the scene. It comes with Portuguese subtitles for reasons that I can't understand, but this is a clip that I could find. Douching is not essential if you eat a lot of fiber and empty your bowels regularly. Hmm. Mm. If you've never douched before, it might be best to start with a simple bulb like that. So water in the bulb. If I'm not cooking the roast chicken, what are people going to eat? Um, crisps. Check the temp. Pour the water crisps. inside of you for as long as you can. Sit on the toilet. And release. You should what about not dips? More than no two dips. Or three times but my guac is just it will wash away the good bacteria and protective mucus in your anus. What? Don't rush. Push it in. Compress the ball. Pour to take it out. What's going on? I'm teaching Otis how to douche. But we're believing yeah. yeah. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So that ending of that last thing over there I thought was particularly funny because it's a not so subtle yet incredibly effective critique of the ways educational institutions are sometimes unable to provide the kind of sex education that teenagers, particularly queer teenagers, but really all teenagers actually need. You know, this is the biology teacher who's supposedly in, in charge of uh, providing with this sex education and has no idea how lavative, lavatives work. I have another example here. Um, I couldn't find the actual clip, but I think it's absolutely brilliant. This is when the other gay character um, discovers that medication that protects people from contracting HIV exists, namely what we call the PrEP, which is something that should be taught in high schools and that a lot of queer teenagers don't know that exists. This is also quite an interesting scene insofar as it speaks about the importance of creating positive storylines for queer teenagers in the media. When the nurse over here is asking Anwar whether he's had unprotected sex, he replies that he always uses a condom because he doesn't want to die. Every film I've ever seen with a gay person ends with them having sex and dying of AIDS, Anwar responded. I don't think this is an image that we want to disseminate amongst our queer teenagers, right? Another great instance of sexual education in the show is the scene that highlights the importance of ongoing explicit consent during sex. Although this is a heterosexual exchange, I thought it was important to include it because anything that so openly challenges rape culture, in my opinion, deserves to be showcased. if we could like ask each other stuff like dirty talk <laughs> or more like um like can i take your top off yeah can i touch you here 
my sweatshirt today. Well, I, for one thing, this is brilliant. Um, because not only it normalizes ongoing consent, but also it frames it in a way that makes it look kind of sexy. So again, becoming getting a bit more specific about the analysis of the first two sessions of the show, which is um, what my one of my papers was about. When we first started analyzing it, we wanted to know how many of the characters could be considered queer. I know that 90% seems like an awful amount of queer characters, um, right? But bear with me for a second, because I will explain what we understood as queer here. For us, queer meant instances and characters that do not necessarily fit the identity labels comprised by the LGBTQ plus acronym, but who capture instead the very fluid understanding of the self that rejects rigid, essentialist, binarist structures of identity. What are masculinity and femininity anyway? What does it mean to be homosexual or bisexual or heterosexual? Characters who define themselves in opposition to the normal rather than in opposition to the cisgender or in opposition to the straight. So in season one, there were already secondary lesbian characters. Bisexuality was represented through this character, Adam, that I'm gonna talk about more about later in a second. There were plenty of gay characters as well with Eric and Anwar, the character that we have seen just um, asking about the prep. And there was also asexual representation with Florence over here, who was a fantastic example that got so popular that asexual folk all over the world started a petition on change.org to get her back in the show. In the second season, her sexuality is represented through the character of Ola that I'm gonna be talking more about later. In the third season, Carl makes their appearance as a first non-binary character in the show. Now regarding the fourth season, sex education writer Krista Ishta, who identifies as non-binary and transmasculine, again, it's important to have queer people behind the cameras to tell these stories, explained how they realized that not, one only only one non-binary trans character cannot hold everything, which is why they included Roman and Abby, the two trans characters that I showed you before, to portray the different versions of trans that you could be. There is yet another sexual, another asexual character in season four, O over here, which acts as a sex therapist for the Cavendish College, the protagonist moved to for the last season of the show. This is not all. Regarding queerness, non-normative masculinity and non-normative femininity appear represented in many ways throughout the show. An example of this would be the way Otis is additionally not ready to have sex with Ola. We see him here freaking out when it's about to happen because this subverts the traditional narratives about men being eager to lose their virginity. There are also forbidden sexual fantasies and desires, fetishes, kinks, non-gender sexual practices that are not depicted as something that influences your sexual orientation. For example, in the scene over here, Jackson, who is a heterosexual dude, discovered that he enjoys anal fingering and that doesn't make him gay. The best part is that despite this variety, the character's orientations, fantasies, or gender identities are not at the center of the plot. They are just one another part of who they are. In addition, it is also okay to not fit into any pre-established identity. For example, this character over here, Lily, who dates all out, talk more about this later, never defines herself as bisexual, pansexual, lesbian, or whatever it is. 
In addition, the show deals with other things, implementing feminist pedagogies, pedagogies about abortion, about slut shaming, about sexual har harassment, about sorority, about consent, like what we've just seen, about pornification in sex, about female pleasure. It also highlights the importance of the inclusion of disabled people and denounces bullying, racism, ageism, classism, and queerphobia. I wanted to show you this wonderful scene because um, this was a bit of a milestone for asexual representation as I was telling you about before. This is Jean Milburn, the mother of Otis, the protagonist, educating Florence herself as well as the audiences about what it means to have a normal like I don't want to have sex. Okay. Do you want to have a seat? Not having sex is a valid choice, and you shouldn't have sex, and that's should... No, I don't want to have sex at all, ever, with anyone. I think I might be broken. Okay. Why don't you start by telling me how you feel when you think about having sex? I don't feel anything. I have no connection to it. It's sort of like I'm surrounded by a huge feast with everything I could want to eat, but I'm not hungry. Mm. Do you know what asexuality is? It's when someone has no sexual attraction to any sex or gender. Sex just doesn't do it for some people. Oh, but I still want to fall in love. Well. Some asexual people still want romantic relationships, but they don't want the sex bit. And others don't want either. You know, sexuality is fluid. Sex doesn't make us whole. And so, how could you ever be broken? Thank you. Anytime. She is so much better than sex kid. Um, I... Well, I personally think that that was really important uh, to promote self-acceptance amongst the sexual teenagers. Um, how has popular culture influenced these characters that I've just introduced? In the show, diegetic music, and by diegetic, I mean music that the characters themselves can listen to and dance to, and films and musicals and fashion choices and graphic novels and the internet help these characters develop their queer identities and also help them establish queer relationships among themselves. These popular culture references are sometimes openly queer, like uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show or the characters from RuPaul's Drag Race, but sometimes they're not and they have just been appropriated by queer audiences and read against the heteronormative grain. For many, many years, there weren't explicitly queer movies or singers available for us, so we had to use our imaginations to find what was queer about, say, for example, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. For this research, 
we traced back all references to queer popular culture that serves as sites of inspiration for the queer teenager protagonist in the show in the first two seasons. We didn't do it for all the seasons. For example, how does Erika Fiong, this character over here, go to his prom dance? He goes dressed in drag with a Kenta suit and an African turban that reminds us of the iconic African-American queens that have competed in RuPaul's famed reality TV contest, RuPaul's Rack Race. His Nigerian-influenced glam drag, explicitly, if briefly, makes visible the Black origins of so much queer music and performance, perhaps constituting the most open reference to objects from Black queer culture present in the show. Popular culture is also key in the show to the establishment of queer relationships among the characters. On his first date with Rahim, Eric dances with a lot of flair to the song What is Love by Hathaway. And play, I'll play the scene and then I'll talk about it. Mm, come on, it'll be fun. No, I'm very bad at dancing. I'm not doing that. Look, you said take you somewhere that makes me feel happy. Do it for me. What is love? <laughs> you ready? There's something about queer um, young love being represented on screen that just does it for me. I don't know. So this song, apart from having like obvious discus undertones, um, the, the video clip actually has a lot of like vampiric imagery that you can see eh, there. And um, the link between vampires and queer culture has been you know, existing for centuries, because there's this idea of disease and perverted sexuality and that link with blood that become even more prevalent after the AIDS epidemic. So there are inevitable associations between queerness and vampires. In addition, um, oh, I gotta go back. He, um, Eric, also often dances to disco music in the series, which is a key reference because in the 1970s, disco music created a liberated space for queer men of color in the city of New York because it allowed them to gather them in non-homophobic and non-commercial spaces and to express themselves freely. Now, Eric is perhaps the most interesting characters in the first two seasons of Sex Education as he faces forms of intersectional oppression that are due to his race, to his gender expression and to his sexual orientation. It's a bit of an intersectional miss over there. In season one, he's bullied by Adam, who calls him tromboner, alluding to the musical instrument that he plays, but also to oral sex. But then he goes from becoming, from being the, to the bottom of the, in the bottom of the hierarchy to becoming part of the popular clique in season four, from the more typical normative high school that is mortal in the first three seasons to the seemingly utopic Cavendish College. In, an, in addition, his identity is quite complex. He pays homage to his Ghanaian background, 
as we have seen in the way he dresses with traditional African textiles. He comes from a religious family and he's a Christian believer himself, these two facets that he tries to reconcile, particularly in season four. And he displays a non-hegemonic, supposedly masculine queer identity that we can see here. He self-consciously exaggerated clothing and makeup seamlessly fit in within the camp aesthetic paradigm defined by Susan Sontag, as campness is a form of theatrical sex expression that subverts the gender binaries that fail to contain Eric's identity. This is particularly visible in the drag he and Otis do every year for his birthday, dressing up as Hedwig, I'm going to watch queer cult movie, Hedwig and the Angry Itch, which stars an unconventional trans woman depicted here at the bottom, Interestingly, traces of David Bowie's gender-bending rock performance can also be found in Hedwig's character here, which traces a genealogy of queer popular culture as a source for inspiration, going from Bowie to Hedwig to Eric. Also, specific female celebrities like Madonna, Cher, Dolly Parton, or Tina Turner have also been prominent role models for the gay or trans or drag or queer community. Significantly, the first time we see Eric applying makeup and therefore performing his queer gender ambiguous identity, he is listening to Tina Turner's cover of I Can Stand the Rain. It one could be understood as an intergenerational form of cultural reappropriation. In addition, his animal print garments that we can see over here emulate Tina Turner's typical leopard skin outfits. She was also known as the panther. It is also very important to say that not all of these references are as inspiring as positive. Although both Otis and Eric dress up as Hedwig in this episode here, it is only Eric, the black guy, the gay guy, that gets narratively, narratively punished for this gender transgression in season one because he is attacked by two queer phobic white men who follow him from a car. I have decided not to include that scene because I want to focus on the positive. Another thing that inspires uh, Eric's identity is the groundbreaking queer documentary Paris is Burning, a 1990s documentary filmed by Jenny Livingstone that depicts the bull culture of New York City and the African-American, Latino, gay and transgender communities that were involved in it. Their dancey style, which was called voguing because of the model-like poses that they're striking here, was then appropriated by Madonna for her song Vogue, a move that has been criticized as co-opting a form of queer resistance and turning it into a money-making machine that ultimately benefited the white, presumably straight, cis women as much of as, as a queer myth she has become. Let's see how Eric votes. Nails, hair, hips, heels, ass, fat, lips, real, you, me, you, wish, new, phone,
this song that was playing, Nails Her Hips and Heels, is a song by controversial gay singer Todd Cole that was actually performed on RuPaul's Drag Race many times in, during the lip sync battles. I don't know if you've seen the show, but if you have, you know what I'm talking about, uh, where the singer also had a recurring role. So it's, you know, a sort of like genealogy of queer references that transverses the show. Now, if we understand queerness as a rejection of normality in all its forms, sex education's most transgressive character would undoubtedly be Lily over here, who is an amateur comic book writer who through her artistic expression, funk fiction writing, theatrical performances has managed to create her own post-human erotic universe. Rather than a new human being, Lily's ideal sexual object is actually an alien as we can see. In this sense, Lily is presented as an androgynous being with futuristic outfits, galactic makeup that you can see here and here, um, a hairstyle that kind of makes you think of antennae in the little, little two things that she has on her hair. She writes sci-fi sci fan fiction, which is important because historically speaking, queer feminist fan fiction writers have appropriated objects from heteronormative popular culture to make the storylines and the characters queer. Lily's queer rewriting practices of canonic sci-fi, like her references to Lieutenant Ripley or Alien, reveal that not everything about popular culture, not even a genre as masculine coded as sci-fi, is actually straight. Lily's got this wild world of sexy fantasies, diving deep into an erotic space where weird alien creatures mix it up in a cyborg and post-human vibe, introducing tentacles that you can see here and here, um, cracking style dildos in her fantasies and her sexual encounters and processes like the ones that she's wearing in her hands and role-playing in cosplay in her sexual encounters first with Octoboy, a guy, and then with Ola, as we see here in this scene in which they are both cosplaying Tanker. Le Sadly, in season three, which is the darkest season of the show, when a very Puritan director then takes over the high school, um, she makes Lily wear this horrible sign about her fan fiction writing. And she kind of gives up on her um, crazy alien aesthetics, galactic looks. But this is solved by the end of the season. I'm spoiling here. I just wanted to reassure you that it's a bit of a happy ending. Now, I wanted to show you just one tiny scene that shows how it is their shared love for Tank Girl, this post-apocalyptic comic series that was made film that they were cosplaying the last shot that I showed you, that kind of sparks uh, Lily and Ola's initial Hello, love. I'm Lily. Oh, I love Tank Girl. Yeah, it's criminally underrated. <laughs> Thanks. Don't make eye contact. And they go from there. It's just a very short clip, but they kind of go from there, from there. Now, something that I am actually going to show you for a bit longer, um, if I can, is this crazy, insane um, musical that Lily sort of prepares and designs. This is the paradigm of Lily's queerness in the sense of, you know, it being a rallying cry against the regimes of the normal. This is a musical adaptation of Shakespeare, of Romeo and Juliet, which she writes and directs for the end of the year performance after their school, which then causes a scandal. And with it, she, Lily shares with the entire school and the parents her way of understanding sexuality as something fluid that's not fixated by designing a phallic 
and vaginal staging that recreates her sci-fi universe in a very glam key that kind of reminds us a little bit of Bowie with plenty of tentacles as per usual. I'm not gonna show the entire clip because it's too long, but I just wanna give you. to leave it here as delightful as this is um, if I can now her adaptation that you know just just in a piece of is inspired on the other hand by the tradition of cult musicals for the queer community like the Rocky Horror Picture Show over here which is you know overtly queer and outrageously sexual kind of like what we just seen and on the other hand, by recent queer readings of Shakespeare plays, some of them that were performed at the Globe Theatre in London, like Emma Rye's uh, Twelfth Night adaptation. So let's go discuss a little bit about Ola, which becomes Lily's girlfriend. Um, although at first she dates Otis, but there's an obvious lack of chemistry between the two of them. Later in the show, she realizes her attraction to Lily in a very psychedelic dream that I'm going to show you in a second. Through her character arc, what becomes evident is how the internet has become the main source of information on identity and sexuality for queer teenagers, particularly for the lesser known ones. Once she starts realizing that she's into Lily, she takes this BuzzFeed style online test about sexual orientation that declares her pansexual, which you know doesn't seem to come as a shock for her. She also wears a Manlin Dietrich-like tuxedo that you can see here to her prom dance. One of the first celebrities to openly wear men's clothes, Marlene Dietrich's ambiguous sexual allure and ambiguous kindness of gender expression has made her a timeless sex symbol and icon for queer women all over the place. In fact, I have to say that most of Ola's outfit choices and her short haircut mark her gender expression as quite androgynous, apart from Eric, She's the only character in season one that expresses a more ambiguous gender identity. She wears dungarees, this rainbow badge, a lot of rainbow color clothes, etc., etc. It's you know it was kind of hinted that she was going to be queer. Um, so let's show you now the dream in which uh, Ola realizes that she's attracted to Lily. What's that noise? It's my heart. Kiss me harder. 
Pesotus. Think I might have killed him. Check the link in the. You know the. Lily over there is also wearing Tanger cosplay, but it's also really interesting how in the beginning of the of their dream, when it was like mostly heterosexually coded, the lighting wasn't as psychedelic. There is, you know, a lot of um, red and blue lighting. There are electric sounds. It reminds viewers, I think, or at least it reminds me, of David Bowie's galactic video clips. Again, borrowing aesthetic influences from one of the icons with the most ambiguous gender expressions of all times. The song Early Rain by punk rocker Ezra Furman is playing in this dream. They were also responsible for curating and creating Sex Education's original soundtrack. Here, it is music and video clip aesthetics that signal the beginning of a queer desire. And this is a screenshot from one of David Bowie's video clips that, as you can see, that neon lighting, that psychedelic imaginary, reminds us of her dream. Uh, the music would too, if I had chosen to include. Um, the video clip itself. Now let's talk about, about the last character uh, that I wanted to focus on today, which is also the most problematic in some ways. Portrayed as hegemonically masculine, you know, there are rumors about his massive elephant penis. He bullies Eric, like as you can see here in season one. Um, he's physically quite big and strong. He doesn't do well in school. We also see hints of a less toxic, more tender form of masculinity in the way Adam takes care of his little dog, which is ironically named Madam. You know, there's a bit of a wordplay there. Why is it problematic that one of the first of the few instances of overt homophobia that we see in this show is precisely perpetrated by a queer closeted character that you know, we can see here. Because this locates queerphobia already within our communities, suggesting that it's closer to the individuals that don't want to accept their identities that attack and discriminate other queers, rather than acknowledging the existence of the oppressive structures and prejudice that rule our cis-heteronormative societies. Adam's conflicting bisexuality is also spread through the way he masturbates to an action film poster, then again, popular culture, which features a man and a woman. In scene, he first looked lustfully at this dude over here, Tommy Tester, he does not exist, while shaking his head in denial and trying to look at the girl instead. These actors, eternally powerful um, physique always on display, reminds us of other action heroes like Schwarzenegger or Stallone, which constituted non-suspect gay icons back in the 80s. Why were they considered non-suspect gay icons? Because, you know, there were their active poses and their muscular bodies um, sort of were portrayed, makes us think of an active, active subject, not a passive effeminate man, which makes it easier for queer men that are trying to come to terms with their sexuality, like Adam is, and don't want to see themselves as effeminate, whatever as problematic as that, as that feminine phobia can be to, you know, be turned on or attracted to or identify themselves with this type of characters. So let's move on to the conclusions as my time is running out. Um, so first of all, I want to say that the way these characters incorporate so many references and so many that I left out because I didn't have to focus on them, of popular culture to build their non-normative gender expressions, their sexual orientations and their forbidden and gendered fantasies and sexual practices reflects in a, in a sort of like meta way, 
the role these shows play for their actual teen audiences. We need more references for queer teenagers to affirm their identities because this is a mean to recognize yourself and to connect with others through fandom. The show also makes tribute to the history of queer popular culture from Rocky Horror Picture Show to Paris is Burning to Tina Turner to Madonna and all of these references have an impact in the self-acceptance and gender expression of the characters. As Frederick Denon says, the ongoing public debate about civil rights is not only waged in the political arena, but also in popular culture. I wanted to conclude asking myself whether the high school where they, you know, the last season of the show happens, which is called Cavendish College, can be considered a queer form of utopian or not. In this scene over here, we see Ruby, who used to be at the top of the popular clip in the more normative high school, pretending to be a queer ally to fit in with the rest. The college is very green and it's run by two trans students over here. It's very democratic and everyone can express themselves. Bullying and gossiping are forbidden. However, some problems remain. And I want to conclude by showing you this little scene over here. What's happening? This is very disruptive. Ro Ros, can you please sort out the alarm? I've asked nicely multiple times for the lift to be replaced and nothing has changed. So yeah. I'm going to be a little bit disruptive, because quite frankly, I'm fucked off. I've got other things I need to be worried about, like whether I'm going to get a good result in my exam, what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. Normal, everyday shit. But instead, I'm here wasting my time explaining why accessibility is a big deal, when it should be a given. I thought you fixed it. Yeah, it's just fucked. I'm not blaming any one person specifically. It's everyone's fault. What's happening? Because it's everyone's responsibility. The lift isn't working again. If so. this college can afford sound baths, communal harmony bees, they can definitely afford a working lift. And I know that that's not glamorous, but it's really important that when people ask for something that they need, you listen. Look. I think this is just one big misunderstanding. He says it's a big misunderstanding. We can fix this. This is Cavendish College. You come to us it's with your problems. It's not a misunderstanding. It's an afterthought. None of you realise you left me behind just now when college could have burned down. I used to sign Bielsa as a kid, but when I went to secondary school, the access just wasn't there, and I was so embarrassed to ask for it. So I pretend I'm coping as well as everyone else. It's so much work, lip reading, having people speak for me. I wanted to make to take that opportunity to emphasize the importance of higher educational institutions to become places of inclusion, diversity, and acceptance of everyone. Because you know, disabled people, queer people, people of color already face discrimination and oppression and lack of accessibility pretty much everywhere else. We have these big policies with great words in place that tell, tell us about all this you know, diversity, accessibility, inclusion, but sometimes the reality what we, that we face when we want to install an elevator to have one of our disabled students go to class and access his courses, or when we want to change the male and female toilets to gender neutral ones so our non-binary students or trans colleagues can go to the toilet, is a massive wall of bureaucratic problems even in a place as lovely as Cavendish or a UCL could be. So 
that is pretty much all I wanted to tell you today about this amazing show. If you haven't seen it, I hope this lecture has encouraged you to give it a try, as well as to consider the impact shows like this may have on the development of queer youth identities and self-acceptance. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to have a look at the papers that inspired this talk, they're all easily accessible through that QR code. And uh, feel free to contact me with any questions and suggestions. My email is over there. Thank you very much for listening to me today. Well, thank you so much, Lydia. That was um, hugely enjoyable and, and thought-provoking talk. Thank you for leading us through that. Um, just to encourage people to um, pop any questions on the on the Slido. We've got a few there. Um, I, I will say I, I've had my own moment of lift rage this week, so it was lovely to see that clip. And just to encourage anyone who is at UCL, if you do see a lift that's broken, report it, um, because people don't. Um, um, and uh, yeah, that would be that would be a start at least. Much work to do. Um, I I did Romeo and Juliet at school, so it made me laugh. That clip in particular, uh, it wasn't quite like that version. Um, if only it could be. Um, so that sort of leads on to I think the first uh, couple of questions, um, and um, around um, uh, is there any indication of um, mainstream sex education being influenced by by sex education uh, another qu similar question that's come through is what more needs to be done to get better sex education in our schools well i'm actually really really glad that you or whoever in the public asked that question asked that question um this is one of the projects that i have in mind that i want to apply for funding for i want to create workshops for sexual education in secondary schools utilizing some of the examples and scenes from the show you know working with actual sexologists and psychologists and educators um, to actually bring in these values about consent female pleasure pornification queer non-normative gender and gender sexual practices to high schools in the UK. That's something that I really, really want to do. Because as beautiful as this research may be, you know, watching a movie or watching a show and analyzing how it works, what you really want to do with uh, your research and your teaching is actually change society, you know, for the best. So if a show can foster self-acceptance and inclusion and better sexual knowledge and sexual education, well, we should do something about it. In following on from that, are you are you aware of any other shows which demonstrate the art of seeking consent it's quite as well as those clips that you, you gave us there? Or is the show really an outlier? I think, I mean, I think consent is an ongoing um, topic, an ongoing theme in, in particularly teen TV shows uh, that are broadcast or streamed through Netflix and HBO. Um, there was this one, I can't remember right now the title. I don't know if it was Dear White People um that also explicitly dealt with that there are movies as well but the way this is done which is a bit in your face but still like made to look sexy I think this is something that I hadn't seen before it's they usually show you the negative side of consent the non-consensual or the gray lines this is you know the other way around and it might be a bit utopian and it might be sometimes depoliticized but I think it's quite effective yeah me too um, okay, which one should we take next? So we've got a question here. Um, Galton introduces repression of the rest and celibacy, celibacy for those less fitted than the generality. Should we instead argue for pure representations of parenthood? 
Wait a second. Can you can you go again at the first part? So uh, Galton introduces repression of the rest and celibacy for those less fitted than the generality. Should we instead argue for pure representations of parenthood? Oof. That's a very difficult question. Thank you. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, I'm assuming that the person in the audience is talking about the, the director, that the headmaster that gets brought in in the show for season three, who is like, you know, promoting celibacy as, as, as the only route towards sex education, which is you know, highly reminds me of what happened in my Catholic school as well, or in many Catholic schools. Um, about pure representations of parenthood, I don't think so. I think the same way we should not be aiming at creating perfect, you know, unproblematic queer characters. We should not be aiming to at creating perfect pure representations of parenthood because this sets an, an impossible uh, role model for a lot of people and it's frustrating and it's unrealistic. And you know, if teens watch the show and look at Jean, for example, the way she deals with parenthood, which is not perfect, but pretty great, they might think, oh, but this is not my mom and get frustrated. So I think, um, um, you know, diversity and nuance are always uh, more desirable than perfect representation or only positive representation. There's another another question here around um, uh, school sex education. So um, uh, the question is how much freedom do teachers have to utilize shows like sex education? Do you know about that? And um, how, as a, I guess it's an obvious way to encourage healthier um, queer representation in, in school sex education. That yeah, that is a really good question. I I only moved to the UK very recently. I I moved here in April. I know what's happening in Spain and what's happening in Spain pretty much depends on the region. So there is a region that's ruled by the extreme right, where they have implemented something that they call the parental pin, which means that whenever a talk is going to happen in school about LGBTIQ plus rights, feminism and sexuality, the parents can choose um, their children not to participate in these activities. This is entirely messed up for many, many reasons. I don't know what's happening here. I'm assuming some similar limitations might be in place. I know that my colleagues at the Knowledge Lab and at Remap that uh, work more closely with uh, secondary school educators would have a better answer than me for this one. But I think, generally speaking, in the UK or in Spain, this is something that we need to work um, much more on. Okay, um, I think this is probably our last last question. Um, what can we say to those that claim that wokenism has gone too far in TV and film production? Um, I was going to say give them the data, but also, um, no, I wouldn't do that. I would show them... I would actually show them uh, documentaries like Disclosure or stuff like this, like films, TV show, media products that have a much more uh, emotional appeal than pure data. Because I think that once you watch this stuff, it is really, unless you are a heartless monster, and pardon my French here, um, it is impossible not to understand why this representation matters. So yeah flag them to the TV, put this disclosure on their faces and see how they react. Oh, well, 
Thank you um, very much. I think we've, we've come to the end of the end of our, our lunch hour talk today. So um, huge thanks again to you, Lucia, and also um, thank you very much for the audience. Before everyone disappears, just to say that the next uh, lunch hour lecture takes place on the 15th of February um, on the Faces of the Future, AI's Journey Beyond the Realm of Strangeness. So I um, hope to see many of you for that one. Um, so thank you very much. And that closes today's um, lunch, tower, lunch hour lecture. Thank you, Alison and everyone. It was a pleasure.